When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine being out to dinner one evening and a job recruiter, perhaps accompanied by a few large burly men, offers you a job that you don't want with low pay. And guess what? You can't say no. If this had happened to you in the 18th century, you would now be a member of the British Royal Navy and about to set off to sea. Today, we're talking with Denver Brunsman about press gangs, impressment, and quite possibly the worst way to get a new job. This is Too Complicated for History. have as our guest Dr. Denver Brunsman, a history professor from George Washington University. Thanks so much for being here with us, Denver. Uh, it's great, Lynn. Thanks for having me. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your research and what exactly you're, you're focused on and interested in and why you chose Aye, that. Topic. We want to know what you'll be studying. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I, I, I study British naval impressment. And, you know, as I tell people, I, I study like the process in which people get hit on the head in a bar and end up in a, in a Royal Naval vessel. So, you know, it's a really fascinating topic and it's, it feels quite foreign sometimes, uh, but it really takes you back to the 18th century when, you know, navies needed men and they would find any way possible uh, to get them. Uh, and so this took place, you know, across the Atlantic, in the Caribbean, you know, in North America, in the British Isles. So kind of my uh, intellectual curiosity and my love for travel and all these different things uh, come together with this topic. Fantastic. I think one of the first things I want to do is um, you use different terms in your research. So we're going to be throwing around terms. So I want to make sure that you define them for us because I know what I think they are, but I could be wrong. Um, privateers. And then, of course, pirates and then press gangs. So yeah, the to me, piece. these are all kind of <laughs> similar, but I'm not really sure how you define them. So what are these people? Yeah, they're all you know, somewhat related and they're all part of this uh, maritime world of the Atlantic. So let's start with uh, press gangs, uh, since that's my main focus. So the press gangs were part of the Navy. And this was basically a group of men, you know, maybe around 10 to 12 at most. It could be, you know, as few as four or five, uh, usually headed by a, a naval lieutenant. And they would operate both at sea and on land. And they're looking for recruits. They're looking for, you know, prime uh, subjects to to sail in the in the Royal Navy. So this is a, you know, this is a state-sponsored 
uh, conscription and, you know, you might say, you might say kidnapping. So th- these are the ones pr- in the bars, <laughs> people. Yeah. So, okay. um, <laughs> and that doesn't happen too often, but you know, there's, there's cases, there's cases, right? So that's, uh, that's press gangs. Um, and privateers and pirates are very close together. So pirates, you know, these are, these are folks who are, are operating on the private side of things. So they're not part of the state they're not you know part of the the government in any way and uh you know they're they're stealing stuff they're <laughs> they're stopping ships <laughs> at sea and they're taking over ships and they're forcing some of those people on board the ships into their ships so you know they're practicing impressment a, a different form of it but you know by the 18th century these activities are illegal and uh you know, if you've seen your Pirates of the Caribbean, you know that the Royal mm-hmm. Navy is going around trying to capture uh, these different pirates. Now, privateers, you can kind of think about as legal piracy. This is uh, the state, the nation, uh, whether it was, you know, Great Britain or France or even the early United States, giving a document called a letter of mark uh, to a ship captain. And that basically authorized him to become a pirate. And uh, he would, you know, make war and and try to steal stuff from the enemy. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in the early modern era, in the 1500s, leading into the 1600s, England, you know, used pirates and and really kind of invented privateering in a way by, by essentially sanctioning these pirates to attack the enemy. So all these different folks are, are roaming around the, the seas uh, in the, the 17th and 18th centuries. I, I've been trying to Thanks. think of a pirate speak way to interject into that conversation, and it was just <laughs> too slow. So I'm just going to drop the voice. You, you can just drop but, an R. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, oh, so, so privateers are a little like contractors. Right. You know, the, you know, they're being paid by the government to go do a job. Absolutely. Kind of, yeah, outsource. And, and, and they kind of make their money... You might say, you know, their analogy to today through through royalties. They're, they're they're making their money through what they capture. They get ah. to keep a share, and you know, the government gets to keep a share, and the, you know, it gets distributed in different ways. That highly favors the officers, and and so I think that's one appeal of piracy, is that it it was more democratic in sort of the division of the loot, uh, and and so a sailor who's kind of facing these choices, what do I do? You know, what am I going to do in this war? Am I going to go with the regular navy? Am I going to go with the privateer? you know, uh, or am I just going to go all pirate? You know, I think they had to factor in all of these things. So uh, just to, so I know very little outside of the movies, <laughs> being completely honest about this era and this particular you subject. And a lot of now, people, I, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, it, it, could, could you give me a little bit of timeline? Because you talked about the different, the British Navy specifically, but as far as like what the timeline of the diff and how they invented privateering. So were they the, uh, like for um, hundreds of years, the, the dominant power in the ocean? Had other other nations, other countries tried different methodologies for, you know, trying to tame the seas, as it were? <laughs> yeah, so the, the English are are kind of underdogs uh, in the early modern period. Um, and that's one reason they resorted to piracy. So, you know, they're a fairly backward nation in, in, in the 1500s and into the early 1600s, uh, which, you know, is often uh, called the Elizabethan era. And, and in fact, Elizabeth I is the person who uh, sanctions these, these pirates, these uh, folks that were called you know, her, her sea dogs, uh, people like Sir Francis Drake, uh, to make war on the Spanish, who really were the dominant 
uh, imperial power at the time, we can think about you know, uh, Columbus sailing for the Spanish and the Spanish kind of getting first to the new world. And uh, they discover uh, lots and lots of silver and uh, gold. And so they're bringing those ships back. And those ships were the targets uh, for these early, you know, pirate slash uh, privateers. And so um, so that's kind of the early period. And you, you go forward into the 1600s. And what happened is that, you know, England eventually gets enough uh, wealth that they decide to make their own navy, not just to, you know, outsource everything to these these privateers. And so as the modern state begins to build and they have their own navy, uh, these people that they had previously empowered to make war on, you know, other nations all of a sudden start to target their own ships. <laughs> you know, pi- pi- pirates don't always discriminate, right? So they, they start targeting English ships. And, and at that point, they become a problem. And that's when... That's when you get the Pirates of the Caribbean dynamic in terms of the Navy uh, versus uh, pirates. And, and you know, and, and as the Navy grows and they begin having more and more wars, uh, especially with the France, they just needed lots and lots of men to fill these ships. And that's, and that's why the you know, practice of impressment uh, really explodes uh, in the 1700s. So it's it sounds like you're talking about like a you know centuries old struggle for the state to m- control a, a part of the world or an area that is just inherently difficult to do so right that's a big kind of like all these, yeah. yeah okay yeah I mean we think about this the sea is is in some ways kind of boundless right it doesn't have all the natural boundaries of the land and so to try to lay some kind of claim to that space to nationalize it in a in in a sense is is what England was really trying to do and and they have different rivals i mentioned france and spain um the dutch are a huge rival because they become a shipping power um in the 17th century and have their own colonies and you know there's a there's a phrase that's used with you know all the wealth that uh, the dutch had is there was an embarrassment of riches <laughs> the english went on one you know they went in on that as well and and the Dutch so dominated shipping at one point that English sailors learned the names of the different parts of the ship uh, by the Dutch name. <laughs> they actually didn't even know the English name. <laughs> and, you know, this becomes a real problem for England. And that's that's one reason they passed a bunch of laws in the, the mid-1600s uh, called the Navigation Acts, which <laughs> require their ships to be manned by English-speaking sailors. So so there really is this this big attempt to to control the seas. Yeah, maybe think, and an analogy today might be space, right? We'll see what happens, but it's kind of like that, oh. you know, uh, kind of like the the race to to control this. Uh, yeah, this, I was thinking of other yeah, historical yeah. places where, like the you know, state power is difficult to exert in those spaces, like the American West in you mm-hmm. know the you know the, the later latter half of the nineteenth century, or you know any of the colonial era, like you know places like uh, you know, the Amazon jungle and sort of the Portuguese empire, you know, uh, but mm-hmm. like there's these spaces that are difficult to exert state power, difficult to make things safe and develop systems that make it like, hey, these are our trade routes. This makes it so that we can economically exploit this area or people can traverse safely or whatever. Um, but this is an interesting version of that because it's we don't have that experience with the oceans nowadays outside of like a few particular pockets that I just remembering about maybe 10 years ago, there was a big thing with Somali pirates, uh, the, you know, uh, off the African coast for a little while. But besides Captain that, <laughs> piracy is like movie. more. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, usually, usually I'm the movie reference guy. Captain <laughs> Phillips, Tom Hanks. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, that kinda, the captain and, now. And, 
even from them, we can kind of learn a little bit about this story because you think about it that people resort to piracy and those types of you know lawless actions at, at a weakness that they don't they're not mm-hmm. able to exert their power otherwise, mm-hmm. and and so you know that's kind of how England gets started. And in some ways, that's how the United States you know gets started. They use lots of privateers uh, in the Revolutionary War and the War of eighteen twelve. And England, which kind of created this model, this formula, you know, uh, disparages the early U.S. endlessly um, for for this type of piracy. So what yeah, kind of actually, things are they stealing? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, Isaac. I've just I, I have this vision in my head of them like but having their arms full of gold bars. And I know that <laughs> probably isn't true, but I want it to be. So what are they stealing? What are these, you they know, pirates and privateers? Lynn, not bars, doubloons. <laughs> <laughs> what were they stealing? And, you know, what? because to me, gold bars, like, okay, that's worth <laughs> something anywhere. But taking barrels of tobacco, I just don't yeah, see that as being Yeah, as... it doesn't seem that great, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in the late 1500s, early 1600s, um, that was that kind of like classic age where someone really could capture one of these Spanish galleons and and make it rich. So maybe not gold bars, but, but gold uh, for sure. And then Jewels. I think after that, it really is any attempt, especially in times of war, to disrupt commerce and any type of material wealth. So, I mean, we're kind of joking about tobacco, but you know, that actually happened where French uh, privateers would stop English tobacco ships and and England in particular is really dependent on trade for its wealth. It really needed all of that to continue even during wartime. Right. So that would be one way, I think, for you know, uh, Britain's enemies to really get at it, uh, you know, whether it was sugar, um, tobacco, you know, the various things. And then, and then the ships themselves, uh, you know, these take years to build these, these really, you know, giant uh, sailing ships. And, you know, one thing I love in, in my research is you find a ship that has been captured multiple times and the name just keeps changing back and forth between like an English and a French name. <laughs> and you just kind of have this vision that some guy maybe kind of has this paint and he's going, you know, he's just kind of adding an accent mark here and a letter there, you know, and uh, uh, but that's, you know, that really did happen. That's funny. To to get back to impressment, I'm guessing because it was necessary, there was something about this that was unappealing. <laughs> this life. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going <laughs> to speculate on what it was. I'll let you tell me. But there was something that people weren't, you know, running <laughs> to go join up. Yes. No, that, that is correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fact that it was needed, right? And, and the name of my first book is The Evil Necessity. Uh, and I, I think that's how they thought about it, that, you know, they almost acknowledged that this was an ideal, that <laughs> this wasn't a great thing, <laughs> um, but it was necessary. You know, it was, it was good for the promotion of the state and for the, you know, the glory of Britain. But you know, one thing I've I've said in in different talks and and presentations is that I've never found an example of a sailor who wanted to be impressed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I mean, and maybe I should qualify that I, uh, a little bit. Any any white sailor that wanted to be impressed, because I have actually found a handful of black seamen, you know, in this time, whether free or especially enslaved, 
where impressment was welcome, right? That this was an actual hmm. opportunity for people that were you know, so oppressed that they didn't have uh, many other options. Uh, but for you know a white English or even American uh, sailor, they would do all kinds of things to avoid this, you know, and especially change their dress because you know the the clothes that sailors wore or the tar on their hands from working on the ship would be a dead giveaway that they were a sailor, mm. <laughs> and that's exactly what the press gang you know was looking for in those bars and in in other areas. And so um, sometimes this goes to extremes where uh, some men even cross dress uh, at times in order to oh. to get away from from the press gang. A couple of sailors I've you know, found set up a fake law firm. Uh, <laughs> they, were, they, they weren't sailors. They were lawyers. You can't. That's um, fantastic. Uh, Why are so, your hands so black? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We write, we write many <laughs> contracts. That's right. We write many contracts. <laughs> That's, That's the phrase I use, right? The ink-stained wretch. I'm <laughs> just an ink-stained wretch. <laughs> it's not tar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, that's interesting that there are some uh, that you had found some black sailors that were interested that wanted to join up. I guess that speaks to the environment that working on a ship is like you can't necessarily oppress a person <laughs> in the same way. Right. When you're out at sea and it's just a you know a couple dozen of you. Actually, how many people would be on a ship? I have, actually have no idea. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, so it would, it would get into the hundreds. Like the really, really, okay. you know, large warships would have five, six hundred men, which really just distinguishes them from a merchant ship at the time. Merchant ships are mm. much more like, you know, almost always under 100 men and, and usually even a lot smaller than that. And the reason is they need all these extra men to man the cannons and to, you know, basically fight. <laughs> mm. um, so when that's not happening, there is, you know, there's quite a bit of downtime. Even, you know, in the military today, this is a common phrase, the, the hurry up and wait. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's a lot of a lot of waiting. And and there was violent discipline, um, and but I think you're correct. I think that's used, but that can, that can only be used so far. I mean, I think that they had to use other motivations to get sailors to work. And one thing I write a lot about is is just the sailors' ideals of their own manhood, their masculinity that was you know really wrapped up in their professional skills, and. And so they get on a ship and I think, you know, this is what they did for a living. And even though they didn't want to be there and they didn't ask to be there, <laughs> uh, once they're there, you know, there's that phrase, we're all in the same boat. Uh, you know, they, they're going to keep the thing floating <laughs> and moving, you know, forward. They're not going to let, they're not going to let it sink. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Yeah, that's, a, I was going to say that there is something about you know, a group of people going through, you know, a tough work that creates mm -hmm. cross-cultural or cross, you know, social strata bonds. And I guess you couldn't avoid doing that if you're all doing the same work, essentially, and you're sort of on the same boat, like you said. Yeah. yeah. I like that. All, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Is that where that comes from? <laughs> I think it is. You know, all these, all these phrases from the sailing world that you, you know, you, you, you learn the ropes. Uh, you know, that's a, that's, that's one true. Of the, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a quick follow up question to that, because I'm a person who likes my own space. When you say a big ship, five to six hundred people, can you give us any idea of what big is or how much? Space. I mean, they obviously don't have their own. Yeah, we're rooms. talking like we're not, carnival cruise, cruise size, <laughs> right? Ship. So, yeah. what is a big ship at this time? Yeah. So this is uh, this is something that's called a ship of the line, like the largest ones that would have, you know, sixty, seventy uh, cannon and 
um, you know, three masts. So if you kind of have an image in your head of, you know, these kind of big warships, you know, this is something that was very hard for like, say, an upstart nation like the United States. They couldn't even make one of these things. I mean, it, it right. was it was really kind of like the biggest industrial practice um, at the time required to make this. And, you know, it's very funny in, in Thomas Paine's common sense when he's trying to convince the Americans to declare independence. And, and the very last section of that is all about how they can actually win this war against Britain. He has to confront uh, the Royal Navy. Like, what are we going to do about the Royal Navy? And, and mm-hmm. Thomas Paine's only real answer is, uh, we have trees. We have forests in America. <laughs> so it's like it's like we can the, make anything. The potential is there, and of like, course, aha, you know, they can't yes. sail on the land. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, what he doesn't say is it takes a couple of years to make one of these things, right? <laughs> So, oh, oh, you made because of the wood. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought he was, I thought he meant he was implying like, we'll just have to retreat to the hills. Let's <laughs> <laughs> hide behind a tree. That yeah. too, that too. No, right, it works, that makes it works in sense. all kinds of ways. That makes slightly more sense. He was a little bit of a smarter guy that I'm giving him credit for. <laughs> yeah, he's saying, we'll make ships, don't worry, you know, but, but that, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen until long into the 19th century. So... But these were really crowded spaces. Uh, you know, the common sailors are living uh, below deck and, you know, very cramped conditions in which, you know, they would maybe have, you know, a hammock or a, a small space. So um, so there isn't a lot of uh, personal space, uh, for, for sure. <laughs> and, you know, they, for that reason, they might, you know, when they climb up the mass and they're controlling the upper sails, uh, which is really the, the hardest job they had, the most skilled uh, work. You kind of think about it, they they do have space. I mean, they kind of have a little bit of room up there and it, it probably right. was- Some alone uh, time. Maybe that's, where, maybe that's where breathing room comes from. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll just make things up today. <laughs> yeah, who knows? It sounds good. <laughs> it could be. Yes. No sources. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So you had mentioned about, you know, how for some people, especially uh, black men, it could be, you know, because it's only men, it could be sort of more freeing or they might have more opportunities if they're impressed. Well, were enslaved people ever impressed? And how did that work? Because I'm sure there would be unhappy people if that was done. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really interesting phenomenon. One thing I, I like to write about is is something that I call the, the spectrum of free and unfree labor that, mm-hmm. you know, impressment and these other practices like indentured servitude, right. slavery, that it's really fascinating when they come into contact with one another, uh, when, say, an enslaved person comes into contact with impressment or, or vice versa. Because I think you can learn a little bit about these institutions and the way people at the time thought about them and, you know, which one was preferable, you know, which one was harsher and, and all of that. And so impressed sailors, you know, always refer to themselves as slaves in the 18th century, that they were, you know, they'd been made into slaves. But then oh, I find wow. it really fascinating that the people that are actually enslaved want to be impressed. <laughs> so I think that tells us that um, right. slavery is just, uh, you know, I think beyond uh, the conditions of impressment. I mean, the thing about impressment it did last the duration of a war, so there's no set time on it. And the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, I mean, mm-hmm. gone for like 20 years. So, I mean, it, it could be a very long time, but there is an end. And, you know, there, there is like a point in which someone is free. And so that was a really critical difference. And so I think for that reason, 
you can see the attraction uh, for people who are enslaved. And so this is a long way to I'll get back to your original question. In places like the Caribbean or in some cases the American South, runaway slaves will, you know, they'll run to the British Navy. And, right. and sometimes this causes real problems uh, with, you know, local populations, with uh, plantation owners. Um, sure. Other times, like the Revolutionary War, the British forces, and even the War of 1812, the British forces are really uh, forces of liberation. You know, we mm -hmm. think of them as Americans, we kind of think of them as the bad guys in, in all these things because of our movies like The Patriot. But <laughs> but for <laughs> someone who's enslaved, I mean, they were the, they were the sign of hope. Um, so it is really fascinating how these, you know, these different um, systems of forced labor interacted with one another. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting story um, that I only know because of uh, the work on the, the George Washington series. But there's a ship called the HMS Savage, I believe, that landed on uh, the Potomac and threatened to burn down Mount Vernon, George Washington's house, for the listeners who haven't, haven't who don't know. And, and um, uh, Washington's cousin, who's managing the estate at the time, basically pays them off. But um, several enslaved people, I, Lynn, I'm forgetting the exact number, but is it like nine 17. 17? Yeah. 17, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a significant amount of people end up on the boat and leave mm -hmm. um, yeah. yep. the plantation. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, this affected, you know, George Washington. So this is a huge yeah. phenomenon during the war, absolutely. And, you know, we're... And at the end of the war, the British transport, you know, upwards of 20,000 uh, African-Americans to different parts of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a lot of places it didn't work out very well, but it did offer these people a different outcome than, you know, the most likely outcome if they had stayed, especially in the American South. So talking about the interaction between everybody, we've got the people who are impressed. Um, they could be enslaved. They could be just people who you know, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then I imagine some people signed up willingly. So were there willing sailors? And how did they deal with these people who were forced there? I don't know if it's, did they feel like they were above them? Or, you know, how was that? It's like, well, I did this willingly. And, you know, they dragged you on board. So how did that work? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's it's something I've spent a lot of time on trying to trying to see the interactions between people who volunteer and people who are impressed. Mm -hmm. um, one really difficult thing is British naval records make it really hard for us to pinpoint the exact numbers for each. Mm -hmm. um, I think our best sort of working estimate is that it's about half and half for say your average 18th century war. Some wars. It's a lot. It might be closer to maybe like a third might be impressed. Um, but over the course of the war, that number might increase so that by the end of the war, it might be around two thirds. But I guess the point is there's always large numbers of both impressed and volunteers. And I think it's interesting that they get along quite well. The impressed people really integrate into the crew. They're not trusted as much as you can imagine when they first come yeah. on board they're not you know they aren't giving given liberty to go on shore uh as uh, until they win the trust of you know the officers and that's when they run away right. <laughs> yeah, you would never see me again <laughs> just yeah. wait it out and, yeah. and, in, and in some ways, they really do kind of blur. Um, and, and the records, the reason why they're not precise is that if a person is captured by a press gang, often the press gang, to kind of ease the transaction, you might say, 
offers something called the King's Bounty. This is, the, this is what you get for volunteering. And if the impressed sailor accepts the bounty, he becomes recorded as a volunteer on the ship muster. And oh, so like it, a signing oh. bonus? <laughs> yeah, kind of like a signing bonus. And, and I feel like that or, this was used like quite a, a bit. like a plea deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, take the bounty, take the bounty. Take it. And, yeah. and this is in sort of like the, we were talking about the Elizabethan era. If we go way back then, this was called the King's Shilling. And there's a tradition oh. associated with this where this recruiting gangs, uh, you know, for the army and, and the Navy, but, but in this case, the army, uh, would go to local bars, and there was an old saying that you would always want to drink out of a out of a clear glass, you know, like a pint glass, because they would, you know, the recruiters would try to sneak the shilling into the glass, and you might, if you drank it, you were in the army. Oh, you took <laughs> so, it. How often so that like actually, you actually like it. swallowed the coin? They're like, well, you yeah. accepted it. Oh yeah. yeah, you took it. You can't give it back. It makes, it makes you wonder how often that actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is how, you know, someone who's captured gets called a volunteer. And the, the other weird dynamic, and this is something that I, that I argue, and I tried to kind of shift the, the scholarship, the literature on this, is that one thing I argue is that press gangs are not just looking for any warm body, mm-hmm. that they really want men that know how to sail, because this is, this is a real skill at the time. And if you have too many landlubbers on the ship, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, so they, they were really looking for skill. And so there's a lot of good evidence that shows that an impressed person comes on board and they actually advance faster in terms of they have different ratings, the sailors do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the top one is called able seamen. And, and so a higher percentage of impressed men are able seamen than they are, you know, anything else, because those are the men that are the most desirable, and those are the ones that didn't want to volunteer. It's usually the ones that, you know, didn't have maybe better options that want to sign up for a ship. So. Right. That kind of makes sense that they would be interested in sailors specifically, like just relating this to the film industry, because it's all sort of like a, a team's coming together for a very short period of time. Everyone needs to know, there's no time to like get to know each other and like develop <laughs> a common language. Like you have to step on the set day one and understand the vernacular, understand what everyone is asking, understand the process and who's making what decisions and all the titles are very specific for that, for that reason. And I imagine it's kind of similar. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a really terrific analogy. And there, we could probably think of, you know, listeners, you know, whatever industry you're in, you can kind of imagine that there's a certain amount of expertise that comes in whatever you might do. And, and to become an able seaman, you, you had to really be a sailor for usually at least two years. And, you know, again, mm. you had to know the ropes. <laughs> you, had to, you, had to, you had to learn all, you know, all the knots and, and how to steer and how to reef uh, and, you know, all the things that you, had, you did at the sail. And you're right. And so I think, I think the Navy, how it benefits from that is they grab this person and they're ready to go. Right. They're, they're ready to, right. to fight. And so so this is a big question that I kind of pose. And that is, if, if impressment was so bad, why is the Royal Navy so successful? Why is it so good? Mm-hmm. And so this is my big spoiler alert. But the, <laughs> the answer is <laughs> impressment is that bad and, and the Navy's that good. So I think both things can be true, that impressment mm-hmm. can be a real burden and something that sailors don't like. At the same time, the Navy can can benefit from it. And that's, and that's why, you know, that's why they did it. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. 
And it sounds like the press gangs are good. I wouldn't call them recruiters. Headhunters? <laughs> they, yeah. they were good <laughs> at choosing who to impress, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, they, and so they have a kind of a dual... <laughs> Uh, mission uh, to go back to your uh, question a few minutes ago. They are supposed to accept volunteers as well, so they're kind of, you know, they're kind of doing both things, right. and, and and they'll set up shop in a in a pub, uh, and they'll call this their rendezvous. This is the press gang rendezvous site, <laughs> and you know, and they'll put up the flag and they'll bang the drum and they'll put out posters and stuff. So they let people know that that's where they are, so that mm-hmm. they can get the volunteers. But then they'll send out their little bands of, of men to, you know, go around to maybe other pubs, other spots, and especially, like I said, at sea. Uh, um, and that's when they're going to do their their pressing, when they're going to impress men. So, so they're doing they're doing both things. Do they Im- impress men from other ships? So, if it's a, say it's a Dutch ship and it captures a French ship, do they steal a bunch of French sailors, bring them on, and like make Davy them Jones learn Dutch in the Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> <movies>. <laughs> yeah, so so they're not supposed to. So there 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 are laws that are regulate this, and it's supposed to be only British sailors who are impressed. So first of all, so they it's, can it's, only they can only grab their own citizens. That's right. Who don't want to be there. Right. And, and this is okay. why this is why after the American Revolution, this becomes such a problem and such a controversy because the British keep taking American sailors That's right. after American independence. And what they say is, well, they have a couple of different arguments. So one is that once you're a subject of the king, that never ends. That doesn't go away. And they have a fancy title for this. It's called indefeasible allegiance or oh, perpetual geez. allegiance. And basically what it means is once a king's subject, always a king's subject. So they've never had a revolution, right? They've never had like a new country formed. So right after the American Revolution, they keep taking American sailors. And, the, and one of their arguments is, well, they, they were once British subjects and they can't, you know, get, they can't shed that. And, you know, wow. eventually once they come to the idea that, okay, there are actually American citizens, their, their next excuse is, well, we can't tell the difference. They all speak English. <laughs> they all look the same. <laughs> they all look the same. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really kind of like take men and ask questions later. And, you know, and so the United States sends up this whole apparatus to try to free their own men from the British Navy and and they do, you know, to the credit of the British government, they do release a fair percentage, but it but it takes a lot of effort, paperwork, and you know, bureaucracy. Huh. <laughs> of course, <laughs> which we love as historians. Bureaucracy equals primary documents, right? Primary it source equals documents. Records, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why militaries, navies are good to study. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> that makes sense as far as like the British conception of, of continually being a you know uh, a subject of the king. I mean, I guess like because the fact that the Commonwealth exists. I mean, like. The, the queen is or the king now, I guess, is on the money in like Canada and Australia and I think Australia, by the way, in, in a bunch of other Commonwealth countries still mm-hmm. to this day. But, yeah. You know, I guess yeah. That, that, that uh, idea perpetuated itself longer than uh, they after they acknowledged that America was like, OK, fine, you guys are separate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like they didn't know you what to do special. with America. It's like they recognize yeah. American independence, but they're like, 
but that doesn't mean you're free of us. <laughs> you know, you're still, right, you're still stuck with us. <laughs> yeah, you're still, we'll you're let still. you have your independence, <laughs> but you still have to, you know. <laughs> still have to serve the king, right? You still, yeah, so, uh, serve on our ships forcibly. Yeah. Like the, and so these same, these same things that I talked about that affected British sailors, like if they took the bounty, Mm-hmm. You know, they would be considered a volunteer. This happens to American sailors. So mm-hmm. if their ship is stopped mm-hmm. and a press gang comes on board and, you know, maybe that guy's feeling a little broke and, you know, that bounty looks pretty good. He takes it. All of a sudden, he's stuck. There's no legal recourse at that point. He's considered right. a volunteer. He's not getting out, no matter how much lobbying <laughs> the U.S. government does. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is you know, this is a different time. <laughs> Different concerns. Now, how did they? I'm always impressed. Actually, you mentioned record keeping, but I, I'm always You're impressed. You're impressed, with, Isaac. <laughs> I am impressed. Oh, there you go. Does that come from that word too? I don't think Is so. That, but, but I'm today, trying to think of a way possible. to connect it. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to find a way to connect it. But I don't think. <laughs> but even so, you said that it's to the end of the war. Some of these wars sort of like you know peter out without any sort of definable end. Or, you know, some certain things are like quasi wars that took place. How did they track someone's pressment or their, you know, their volunteer term on a ship? Yeah, when, when they get to be the, free or done. Yeah, when they get to right. be free and done. And, yeah. and in, a, in a world where it could take like six months for someone else to find out that the war ended six <laughs> months ago. Yeah, <laughs> They're, yeah. You know, on the other side of the planet. Yeah. Now, this is something that happens. Um, absolutely. So I guess the most famous case of this is... You know, we, we call it the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars because there is this brief peace in 1802, you know, lasts about a year before the war starts back up in 1803. So technically it's two wars, but they're so closely connected that we usually combine them. But at the time, the British Navy, as it did at the end of every war, it demobilized. So this is why they need the impressment in the first place. They don't have a large standing Navy because they don't want to pay people, you know, during peacetime. So they let everybody go and then they have to impress everybody all over again. But during that time, ships that were off in the Caribbean or the Mediterranean or different places, they don't get the benefits of the peace. I mean, the the sailors are very bitter that, um, you know, one ship in particular, right when the peace is coming together, it's being sent out to the Caribbean and the guys are upset. And then, you know, there's a little <laughs> mutiny, you know, they're like, come on, this is the end of the war. You can't be sending us to the other side of the world right now. Um, so, and, and this, this whole process, you know, we circle back to piracy here because most pirates are born out of unemployment. <laughs> you know, maybe that's even true <laughs> to say, you think about kids and stuff, kids that are bored or don't have something, <laughs> don't have something to do or why crime happens. Um, so what happens is all these sailors who have been impressed, they're they're made on you know, the war ends, they're out of a job. Right. And so what what are they gonna do? Well, a lot of them, uh, especially in places like the Caribbean, uh, they turn to piracy because that's so that's that's when the mo- piracy happens mostly in peacetime, uh, which is interesting. Uh and hmm. you know, I guess and that's another way to think about the difference between pirates and privateers is during wartime, the smart pirate will get you know, the sanction from the government and become legal as a, as a privateer. So pirates are unemployed privateers. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. See, we're, yeah, we're, things sense. are happening on this podcast. This is, we're creating knowledge here. 
Yes. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're giving a bunch of people, you know, training skills, a ship, you know, to fund, like they're funded. And then basically being like, all right, guys, war's done. Go back to whatever you were doing before. <laughs> and what are they qualified to do? Be a pirate. Uh, be, yeah, a, sail yeah. a ship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And so it's like the only thing worse than being forced to work and have this job is once you actually do that, to be thrown out of the job because <laughs> at least they, right. were, you know, they, they were getting right. paid. And that's another difference of slavery. I mean, they did, it's not a great wage, but you know, they, they were happy to, to get the money. Oh, this is a, a, I guess a little bit of a stretch, but a modern day analogy that just popped into my head is actually um, a little bit like the Mujahideen uh, fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan in the eighties, right? This is a group of people that were, you know, willing to fight uh, uh, being funded by one government and then you know after the that government was like all right we're done those guys didn't go home right. like, they didn't just leave you know they they organized and started getting resources from other places and and, and kept fighting essentially um because that's what they, you know they had been set up to do yeah, uh, yeah. it's really not and it's not surprising at all that they you know, the, the piracy happened in peacetime yeah yeah and, and there's you know and i think you see these patterns in history that that sometimes the dangerous thing in his, the most dangerous thing in history is like an army that doesn't have anything to do. Right. So, mm -hmm. so this is right. kind of the phenomenon at the end of the revolutionary war when uh, the American army is no longer fighting, you know, the British. And, and this is when you get the Newburgh conspiracy and, you know, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, the army's going to you know possibly turn on, <laughs> on its own government. And, and, and this is why, you know, way back in sort of the English tradition, there was a lot of uh, fear of standing armies and, you know, that this was not a good thing. Uh, and this, this is one reason why I think, at least ideologically, the, the British veered towards the Navy. It also made sense as an island nation. But the Navy seems like a safer thing. You know, the, the ships are off at sea and they're not, they're not going to bother anybody for the most part. And, and so impressment is kind of the sort of ugly price for all of this. And it, you know, it affects an underclass that a lot of, you know, more elite members of English society don't really care about or don't really see. And so um, it seems to be a very convenient solution for, you know, their ideological hangups and their <laughs> defense needs and everything else. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely safer. Like Thomas Paine said, you can't sail in the forest, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. What are they going to do? That's right. If you read between the lines, that's exactly what he was saying. <laughs> but but that's a uh, yeah, that's that's actually the out of sight, out of mind idea. It's like you know it makes sense. You know, you have a big standing army. Where are you going to quarter them in people's houses and stuff? Right. Like you got to put them somewhere. And they said, like, oh, off of a boat somewhere far away, <laughs> you know, all sleeping on, basically on top of each other. Uh, that's like a floating jail. So how did this? era of impressment um come to a close like does this did this end in any real like you know solitary fashion or does this sort of just fall out of fashion over time or do they pass a law that makes it illegal or yeah it kind of it kind of peters out so america you know eventually goes to war over this in 1812 they declare war mm -hmm. and and it's a war for a lot of reasons but i think you know i argue that impressment is you know right at the top of the list um, and so they're fighting the British over this. It seems like a good idea until the war goes very poorly. 
No matter how many times America tries, they can never conquer Canada. <laughs> this goes back to the Revolutionary War. Just, yeah, we'll don't get evade eventually. You. Yes, that's right. <laughs> don't evade Russia, you know, in European history, and don't evade Canada in North American history. Um, but it seems like a good idea. And then, and then the British burn, you know, the capital in, mm. in August of 1814, and you know, it gets real. And all of a sudden, this war over impressment doesn't seem like a very good idea. And, and so the Americans pursue peace at that point, and that coincides right with the time when the British, you know, defeat Napoleon for the first time, and then, you know, after the Battle of Waterloo for the second time. And so the Napoleonic Wars come to an end by 1815, and nobody knows it at the time because they don't have the, be- <laughs> they're not fortune tellers, they don't have the crystal ball, <laughs> um, but impressment would never be necessary again uh, for the British. There's the Pax Britannica, this sort of you know period of peace in the 19th century with Britain as the main superpower. And one part of that is there's, there's not a lot of wars um, until uh, the end of the century. There's the, the Crimean War in 1857, and that's kind of a test case. And the British almost impressed sailors, but by that point, they've kind of gotten a reserve uh, naval system figured out. So it just kind of goes away. And, you know, but of course we have modern day analogs. So, you know, the draft uh, and other forms of conscription, you know, they're a little bit less ad hoc and mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully less violent than, than impressment. But, uh, but you know, we, we, to this day, we still see conscription around the world. So, um, so that's sort of the quick end of it. So I I love I always love to talk about sources and you know we mentioned military history you have everything written down you have records do you have any first have you found any firsthand accounts or maybe diaries written by people who were on these ships or letters maybe they wrote home um, just sort of their perspective of any of this yeah and it's it's so mm-hmm. exciting every time you get one uh, because. You know, there isn't a super high literacy rate among sailors mm-hmm. of, of this era. And there's all these natural forces that are working against these primary sources, right? <laughs> Especially right. water, <laughs> water damage. <right? laughs> right. um, so, um, but given that, you know, there's a surprising number uh, and especially a lot that are produced actually out of the controversy of the problem of impressing Americans. Because mm-hmm. once those sailors are captured, it really does become an effort to try to amass as much evidence as possible that they're actually U.S. citizens. So, right. so they're writing home, um, they're writing to consuls um, in, in Britain uh, and to whoever they can to, to get help. Um, and if a sailor can't write, and this is a really common thing, there's somebody on the ship that can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, there, so there'll be one person that will you know, write a lot of letters on behalf of uh, different people on a ship. And, and in, this, in this respect, you know, it's kind of interesting. The British allow mail. Uh, this wasn't you know, something that was generally confiscated that, you know, they, you know, to their credit, they allowed uh, letters to go back and forth. So, so an impressed sailor... Um, you know, the handful that we have that did write, you know, in some cases we have multiple letters back and forth to home. And, you know, there's some kind of just basic language that's common to all of them that, you know, I've never been in such a sorry state, you know, that I'm miserable. And, and you know, you really do kind of feel you're reading this and you're like, oh, my gosh, these guys, you know, there's really... This is this is really a tough thing. Um, so, you know, most of them that we have letters for, or a lot of them, you know, do turn out to be 
positive in the end so we can <laughs> kind of appreciate you know, nice. that that process but but of course lots of them you know lots of them perish and and uh, all kinds of bad things happen and for those of us who like minutia how how did the mail come back and forth was there like a little tugboat that came by, dropped off a sack of mail, picked it up, and went back. I don't think there I was mean, a rowboat I, sailing across the Atlantic. Then. <laughs> just one, one, one dude. I said tugboat. Just paddling <laughs> with, like, with just a sack of letters. Well, how do you like, know where they are? Like the See, worst job ever, right? You don't have right? the radar and everything, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. you know. You know, that's such a good question, and I should know more <laughs> about that. And there is a whole process um, at different ports for how it worked, and I, I think okay, it really that is, makes sense. There is kind of like I don't think they called it the mail boat but there is like mail will be put on top of a uh, part of the cargo of say a, a merchant ship and i think there was this mm-hmm. kind of understanding that when you arrive to a port there was a you know person you gave it to and it gets distributed and and you know one of the really sad things in reading this is uh some of these sailors who are waiting to get that evidence that you know their citizenship or something like that you know, the ship just leaves at a certain point and then, oh. and then the letter will come and, you know, they'll, they won't get it until, you know, months, sometimes years later. And uh, yeah. it's just like, uh, yeah, so. Like, I told you ama- so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I feel as historians, we have this amazing power where we're, you know, examining these lives that we have these tools and that we can see things happening to them that, you know, they, they can see in real time. And, and of course, someday somebody will be analyzing us uh, probably in the, in the same way. Uh, I hope is, we're interesting uh, enough. Yes. <laughs> somebody wants to analyze us. <laughs> well, this podcast will make the, you know, it will, it will endure. Right. It will endure. <laughs> <laughs> so normally I actually talk, for, for a lot of our guests, we are always, one of the things that um, I end up, saying repetitively over and over again is that you're usually whoever no matter where you're listening to this you're usually within like 30 minutes drive of something historically cool um that you can go check out that you probably don't know exists like a little historical house or or something like those lines obviously this is a little different because it's you know boats ships rather (laughs) um but is there any are are there any cool places that people could visit to experience some of like you know whether there's a ship or like hey there's a you know a museum dedicated to this particular subject or um they were interested to, to pursue further interest yeah that's that's such a good question and and just a, a few things pop into my uh, head i mean i think anybody who lives near the waterfront uh if you if you have you know say in boston or something i mean impressment would happen you know right there on the wharf um and we have you know in in dc there's um impressment doesn't necessarily happen here but you know we have the the naval yard so we you know, still have this sort of legacy, um, the Alexandria waterfront. Mm-hmm. And any place like that where they have these ships, if you get a chance to just go on board one of these, I mean, they really are beautiful and, and incredible how they were made. And, and you do get kind of a sense from walking around them, you know, how these things were made. And so, um, you know, very famous ones, you know, going back to Boston, uh, like the USS Constitution, um, mm-hmm. um, Old Ironsides. And then there's other legacies of this era that are that are kind of fun. So um, if you do make it to Washington and you make it to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, they have the original Star Spangled Banner. And of, of course, our, our national anthem is born of this war uh, right. caused, <laughs> caused by impressment, uh, even though we don't always right. uh, uh, think of it that way. So yeah, I think this, you know, this is this is around us. And I and I like to think that, you know, this did 
produce a lot of talk about rights and liberties and and you know all of these things i think in the history of ideas do kind of build on each other and and you know i think do kind of affect who we are today as a nation that america first defined itself as a place of volunteer forces that you know that they weren't going to have armies or navies that were you know forced into service like uh, the armies of Europe, and of course, the United States eventually did do that <laughs> with, with conscription. But, but at least at that founding moment, that that's kind of what they're defining themselves against. You know, I, I think is uh, still really important. Do you think if there's one movie that we could watch that would give us the most realistic? I'm not saying realistic, but the most realistic. I have a of, guess. Okay, I'll I try. Think I, I have but, one but, in my but, head but, too. Yeah, but I'll let you answer first because I, I hear this head, from people. That, all, that, all right, the time. here we go. Here yeah, we go. that you think is yeah. the most. Uh, accurate representation of what you're talking about and the uh, life at sea. All right. Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yes. Not what no. I was thinking. No, I was kidding. Okay, so if that's not the one, I would say uh, Master and Commander. That's uh, the one I have. Yeah. Everyone always has yeah. Master and yeah. Commander. Every person so, who's into naval history is like, that's an, the movie. It's an unbelievable <laughs> film. Like if you If you study this stuff and you look at the records, I mean, it, it is a really, really excellent application of that to film. And, you know, I, I show this and I have a graduate seminar in the British Atlantic world. And I had one student once in the middle of the film, he says, you know, nothing really happens in this movie. <laughs> 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 like, and I said, I think that's why it's so great. It kind of like gives you this actual feel of what it's like to be on one of these ships. So, so that, that's, that's, that's fantastic. My choice. That's the one I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. So, uh, Dibri, is, is there any place where our listeners can go and find you or find your work? Are you posting? I know, I know that history, social media right now is a little bit in a, a shifting landscape. <laughs> but are you, you know, are you on Twitter? Are you on Mastodon? Are you on? Uh, I don't even know what the other ones are called uh, now. Or Facebook? Yeah, Instagram. I'm not super active on social media, so I, it's good. To, it's good that you guys found me in my office today, and I can get out <laughs> and talk to the people. <laughs> so, um, oh, great. but you know, I do lots of public talks. I do uh, talks. Mm -hmm. At Mount Vernon, I do talks for an organization in Washington D.C. called uh, Profs and Pints, um, and oh. um, you know I'm I'm known to to answer the an old fashioned email. So um, yeah, I love I love sharing ideas with folks, and uh, and as you say, maybe when the uh, social landscape, the social media landscape, you know, settles here, maybe I'll maybe I'll jump in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for any listeners who are interested, we'll we'll have a link to you know Denver's published work and stuff, so you can take yeah. take a look at that, and and, and some links to um, some of his papers regarding this particular subject that Absolutely. are publicly available. But um, Denver, thank you so much for being part of this. This is a super fun conversation. Yeah. Thank yeah, you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was great. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price-Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.